0: Chapter 33 of White Rose of Weary Leaf by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 33 For the first night since the accident, Amy slept well and soundly. Hers was a sweet and dreamless sleep, the sleep of the just. In this bath of pure oblivion, the horror which had marred her intelligence and confounded her politics slipped utterly away from her and she knew, on waking, that she need fear no recrudescence of the anguished mood that had overtaken her in Blois Cathedral the day before. She was no longer hysterical, that was all. But what had happened, had happened. The old easy tenor of her days at Swarland, with the master of it, Jeremy Dand, her devoted friend merely, beside her life but not of it, was henceforth impossible their relations close enough for her had not sufficed him he had accepted them patiently enough until she lost self-control and recklessly gave him the excuse he wanted for behaving like other men up to that time neither of them honestly had intended to allow the situation to become complicated with sex the man even less than the woman in whom the substratum of pale unproven theory was all the while inimical to conventional morality. Now that with his assistance she had been able to work out these theories of hers to their full extent, she found the glow of self-congratulation strangely wanting. Her state had been both pleasanter and happier when they were in abeyance, consequences still hanging in the air, matters to argue about in cold blood, over tea-tables, and in sunny arbours, than now, when she had proved them on her body. She realized that certain vague and delicate perceptions to be found scattered about her being, in various degrees of density, disregarded by her, had all along been standing her in lieu of conventional morality. And if these useful inhibitions had not been temporarily maimed and rendered of no avail, her theories would have remained forever unestablished. It was mental illness which had blunted her fine sense of rectitude and economic proportion. danced passion, which she had never truly envisaged, abetting. The languors of the sick-room that a few wholesome breaths of fresh air would have dispelled. But she had been managed, she who knew best about herself. She had been carried off to Blois and planted in quiet secret lodgings in a back street, Like the sort of woman he would have her to be, he had been most kind, most wise, most sympathetic. She had not known till blois that he cared for her so much and in that way. Why should she have made difficulties, whose very love of life was hopelessly bruised, who had chosen always to maintain that the sexual relation was a mere matter of detail? She had no care for herself, and as for abstract morality. It had been forever abolished for her, on that night when she had seen with her own unshrinking eyes, poor human life, without truce or power of appeal, crushed like a penny matchbox in the hand of some superior power. She did not rebel or criticize, she simply took the law of laissez-aller to be her law henceforth. Not self-preservation, rather self-annihilation dand was hers now and she was reckless in her merely superficial good-humoured desire to please him why not he was good to her he had come to her at the moment of her direst need as she sat mute in the dreary dawning face to face with appalling truths and staring down hideous vistas of atheism he had held out his hands to her she had laid hers in his because he was kind and nothing mattered He did not know she was reckless. He thought she trusted him. Why should she not let him think so? Her bedroom was at the back of the house in North Street. She had chosen it, leaving the fine front bedroom over the drawing-room, vacant for Jeremy when he came. It had the view. She pretended not to care for views. So when she had done thinking that Sunday morning, and got out of bed and drawn the window curtains as mechanically as she had opened her eyes, She looked out for help and comfort, onto an immediate foreground of water-butts and wash-tubs, while beyond them again lay a dreary, rain-soaked expanse of sodden green grass, the playground of the Blois Grammar School. Hopelessly it stretched out before her in its weakly, inviolable solitude. Two goals for football planted at the farther end of the space suggested a gallows and the whole outlook spelt mediocrity, sameness, the struggle for existence, and despair. To dispel it, she ran quickly in her nightgown into the front room where the remains of last night's farewell feast still lay spread. His napkin idly flung just as he had left it, the heel-taps in the glasses, the innocent country cheek of an apple glowing on a dish in the middle of the table. It was not yet seven— Presently, Mrs. Gray would come in, curl-papered and sleepy, to clear it off and prepare for Amy's solitary breakfast. She would be purposely late on a Sunday morning. There was no hurry. Amy strolled towards the window with a brief but motherly glance at the goldfish, swimming aimlessly about in the fresh water, opening their bloated Victorian mouths at her from behind the walls of their glass prison, then turning away and presenting their finny tails, pink, translucent, indifferent. Amy fed them. The somebody else who used to feed them was dead. In the grey mists of the dawn of the workless day, the two square towers of Blois across the river rose calm, stately, and immutable. Amy thought she could have guessed that it was Sunday. Something in their benign and patient attitude told her so. The workaday look was laid aside. Grand, inanimate pieces of masonry have a sly way of aping those stirabouts called men that grouped them and made them cohere, and gave them the soul that may reside in splendid architecture. The bases of the towers were hidden. The rainy mists clung about the feet like a garment. The whole mass of buildings reminded Amy of a greyhound couchant. In the crenellated towers were empty slits, that might be taken as the raw orbits of haggard, sightless eyes. There was nothing at the back of them but sky. Now that the man for whom she had consented to forfeit her independence had left her, Amy acknowledged her need of support as she had not done before. How could it be otherwise? She was a woman dowered with the latent instinct of clinging, unexercised, through the former exigencies of her position, Now that she too had adopted the feminine attitude, and abandoned her sturdy standards of self-sufficiency, she was more helpless than a person who has never walked alone. The cords that had anchored her to independence were hanging in loose strands, waving in the strong wind of life's stress, like the broken telegraph wires on Blois Bridge which Jeremy Dand had climbed down by, to save lives on the night when he had marred her own. She still drew, it will be seen, her illustrations from the catastrophe that had unhinged her mental apparatus, and thrown her on the unsafe guidance of her emotions. But she thought no more of the sufferers and the dead. The imminence of her own affairs had rushed in, and excluded altruistic gropings and regrets. The Old Fort Hospital was doubtless crowded, but she had left it behind. She was a woman who had once for all been familiarized with the woman's cheap sexual power that she had always despised, used to the violent amenities and the tender exigencies of male companionship. And she had purposely sent Jeremy Dand away from her side, to find out if she would miss them and him. She did miss both, desperately. I don't know, she said again with the usual shrug of her thin shoulders she returned to her dull dark bedroom and dressed, then ordered and ate her breakfast. Then she gave the goldfish their provender and some fresh water, and arranged the flowers in their bowl. The flowers were nothing more refined than a market bunch that she had bought for herself. Jeremy Dan did not court by means of flowers, and Amy, up till now, had never cared much for them. Her curious new appreciation of such romantic things, coincided with the new phase of temperament on which she had entered she neatly mended a rent in the flounce of her dress and put on a sailor hat that she had trimmed for herself she let herself out of the house crossed the river and entered the great church to think the verger pointed her to a place she formed one of a discreet and reverent row labelled f while her eyes rested on a card hung on a diagonally marked pillar to signify that the anthem would be number 136. Nearly all the other persons in the pew were women, and wore black, and their spines were reverently pliable. It did not occur to Amy to suppose that some of them would have been averse to worshipping in her company, if they had known. She herself did not feel wicked or stained, but worried, so much so, that she forgot to come off her knees now and then, posing either as the most devout among them, or the one with something on her conscience. There was no reason why she should feel wicked. Her actions had been ugly and premature at the worst. She was as good as a married woman, to give in to their code. Her lover would marry her soon, as soon as he decently could. According to the most lax interpretation of the strict social regimen, a year, or at least six months, should elapse before a widower takes unto himself a second wife but if Jeremy Dand, in obedience to higher necessity, married her at once, there would be an outcry. People would be shocked to death at such blatant cynicism and unblushing indecency. There is no need to hurt people's feelings. Morality in the main must give way to morality in detail. Jeremy, of course, did not believe any more than she did, that their union, temporary or permanent, could be sanctified or affirmed in any way, by a few words of municipal or priestly blessing, but she knew that he lazily preferred, as a rule, to comply with all superficial social requirements. There are advantages connected with the due fulfilment of the world's fanciful laws, and incommensurate penalties attaching to their neglect. She did not doubt it in the least. Marriage, if she so willed it, lay in front of her, and her cowed, inadequate heart did not leap the Magnificat, Amy Rose. Until now, her horizon had been physically limited, and cribbed in by the heavily clad, muffled group of which she formed part. When she stood up, the spirit that bore up the spacious aisles of the vast cathedral seemed to descend upon her, and she lost sight of personality, and merged her sordid self-searchings in the larger whole of speculation, Aided by the rolling periods of the organ music, she apprehended in some part the very essence of the faith that animated this sparse remnant, which still politely answered to the spur of bygone ideas. Once, she realized, these ideas had been powerful to sway nearly the whole world. Now it was a pygmy audience, composed chiefly of women, the bearers of the burden, who mustered under the shelter of the mighty reliquary raised by soaring belief, and the fear of the consequences of unbelief. Brief candles made an oasis of light for them round their diminished humbled altar, and gas-jets clustering round the Byzantine pillars aided their modern astigmatic eyes to grope in pygmy primers of vile print for the ill-understood but revered formulae of antique ceremonial. Amy's irreverent fancies ran away with her. At one moment she conceived of the patient kneeling group muttering softly words of terror and awe, as a small exiguous soul subsisting, maimed and thin, in a mansion too large for it, faintly alive under the overarching case of the extinct mammoth of faith. She pictured the immense roof as the ribs of the monster, haggard, stark, but of the noble proportions that architects agree to praise. The coloured paintings that had once decked out the frigid stonework, long since faded and withered off, symbolised the red tracks and veins of blood that had fed the flesh on its bones. Jeremy Dand, her professor in these matters, had trained her to see and appreciate the beautiful lines of the building, but he had not taught her to humanise it, like a child, as she was doing. For the rest of the time she spent within these walls, the twin conceptions of the moribund faith and the puny love ran side by side in the stream of her thoughts. The chanting of the psalms, like a protesting murmur of panic-stricken survival, shot through ever anon with low growlings of resentment at the inadequacy of the emotion that accompanied them, was the cry of her starved soul capacity also. One lady, so obviously sinless, sitting next to amy with as she thought a great look of edith dand continued to pipe out mildly unmusically in tones that had as it were no body the memorable terms of self-abasement invented by the sinner david in the interlude comparatively unemotional of the lesson some pedantic aphorisms of poor edith dand's came back to amy's mind induced by her neighbour's strong resemblance with the temporary cessation of the music the chord of feelings awakened by it had relaxed as in a bow you let out a notch or two and the tension is relieved how often had she listened to edith dand with all the emphasis of a weak nature asseverating that love is enough that love ennobles everything that a single-minded honest manifestation of that important passion redeems all errors excesses and aberrations committed by its votaries and the poor lady really meant it there was the test cast of annie dawes which she brought forward on every opportunity she had actually taken back a bad servant on these very grounds and had maintained her infant for her but and here amy considered closely what kind of love was it that edith recognized or thought she recognized In her own opinion the very highest kind she always went in for the best so bought the finest flour and ordered the best beef for her household needs but amy fancied that the limitations of edith's own temperament had led her into a common error it is in point of fact the more sensual variety of love over which the mrs dans of society are willing to throw their mantle of charity Their tolerance is a concomitant of the perfunctory reading of Omar, and Bernard Shaw, and a few popularized volumes of science. Kind, fashionable women, when they speak of pure, redeeming love, are really thinking of something quite different. Edith certainly was, in the case of her dear Dawes, who had betrayed herself a mere uncritical village wanton a short while afterwards." Amy as a technical question was yet unable to decide under which category to place her own feeling for jeremy if indeed its volume entitled it to be enrolled in either even lady medrow incapable of any but material emotions was never weary of declaring that she could forgive any woman of her set going wrong for love she had been used to declare that she was prepared to call upon them in their moral and social destitution if it was fully understood that the overmastering desire for the tenderness of one particular man, whom they would be glad and ready to marry on the spot if possible, had been their undoing. The pressure of bridge debts, even that strong motive was inadmissible. And one life, one love, of course. Amy nearly laughed when she recalled the old flirt's fashionable tritenesses. The lesson was over. A prayer. Amy went down down, asking no blessing of some divine power, but profanely probing the insoluble problem of her feeling for the man to whom she had given herself. Had she even the excuse of love, love under whatever name? She did not know. Even those two worldly, empty-headed women, whose wisdom she had cited, could have given her points. What was the silly, simple element in it, that they would admit and that she missed. Missed always, forever possibly, and yet she was living the life of love. The hot tears rushed into her eyes as she knelt and prayed. She prayed for light, the light of love, not of religion. She knew that she ought to have been turned out, for she was a woman venturing to face her own horrible material life problem in a place of spiritual worship oh to know the truth what was she a sinner a fool or an invalid why was she here on her knees in a church how had she come to be jeremy dan's mistress answer answer the thing folk pray to why as in the seclusion the smarting dark of pressed in eyeballs she knelt with her face dipped deep in her straining hands, did she see not Jeremy, nor Edith, nor even Arina, but the human agent of a little puny emotion that had touched her life once, and then gone out of it. She was standing again on a white glistening road, as she had stood on a cold seaside morning more than eight years ago, and ardent childish lips, were pressed to hers and a boyish figure strained to her body till she could feel the sobs of true anguish wrung from the lad of sixteen at the idea of losing her even for a season she heard again his "Goodbye, darling 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 the voice that echoed in her ears all down the years had been young rich searching in quality yet pure like those voices that sounded now from the choir of Blois. It was the purity, the immaturity of it, that she loved to think upon. It was in her love for this simple lad, now cold in the grave she had cruelly prophesied for him to his own mother, that she must look for a definition of her own capacity for passion. The devotion of a mere child, and yet his was the only love that had ever made her happy and even unhappy in the sweet poignant easy to be comforted way all the thoughts connected with that episode were white suave and softly echoing through the long halls of fancy once when she had been a girl at school an enterprising teacher had instituted comparisons between keats nightingale and shelley's skylark amy had preferred the skylark giving as her reason that she could not breathe in the other's lush and stifling paradise. The open, the clear, the free. The close atmosphere of passion was not for her. It means I am anemic, she thought brutally. It is blood that makes emotion. Oh, if I knew! She rose for the anthem. Her prayer, as before, seemed to be answered when the music began. In shifting gleams of sensibility it came to her. She felt for a moment as if she knew all, could solve everything. She must make haste and think it all out before the music stopped again. The boy Philip, or someone like him, it did not matter, was singing alone. Her intelligence crept after his voice into the chancel and was focused, fascinated by the sense of light and air dispensed from thence. All the rack of time passed with the other man laying behind her in the dark soft gloom in the rear of the church. She seemed to be disengaging herself from it, trampling it under as something noxious, noisome, lying under her feet, a reeking swamp that she had come through and deplored and would fain forget. So she continued to gaze from her place at the glorious confusion of the lighted chancel, the soul of the service, the radiating rose of the carefully elaborated mystery of awe which meant religion to her awe and beauty neither sense had ever been cultivated in amy but now she was in a mood to be impressed by the whiteness of surplices covering over the workaday clothing of vulgar mortal man the strange dim colours of the tessellated floor flared in her eyes as they traversed it on their way to the twinkling blinking altar and the basket of flushed, waxen roses that crowned it. There, by the altar-rails, she and her lover, whom she did not love, would kneel. What right had they to take petty, vamped-up passion, mere physical need of authorized human companionship and sympathy, and lay it here on this august starting-point for noble aspirations, and altitudes undreamed of, and undesired by them? How should they presume to approach and deposit their grotesque sum of earthly love at the foot of the cross of pain and crave a blessing on it, if power of blessing there be? She was not decrying love in the main. Poor Perry, cast out of paradise. Some loves doubtless have the soaring quality and can share in and form part of the unknowable, unthinkable, unattainable that is reputed to rest there high up in the dustiness of the apse but not hers and his how poor and mean that seemed as revealed by his speeches and her reception of them a love that one could die for perhaps might pass muster but she knew well that he did not would not propose to die for her nor did she feel as if she could lay down her life for him no she would not be able the old safe test of voluntary substitution in death failed as soon as she applied it something that when it came to the point would have egged her on to the last sublimity was not in her only the whole-souled love of excelsus so she realized might venture to stand there at the altar along with faith that moves mountains love that breaks locks because it is prepared to scale the heights of self-sacrifice. Jeremy and she had no right to seek a chrism such as this, for a union that was the mere result of propinquity, to ask for the endorsement of a selfish bond of mutual convenience, there where great and enduring loves knelt to pray and become one with divinity. She considered her squalid honeymoon. A woman struck dumb, helpless, daughtering in a dream of horror, plucked from a welter of burning iron and flesh, drugged by large draughts of unbearable torment, witnessed in her own despite, and torn forthwith through the gates of a material paradise, lifted, insensate, sheer into the smiling realms of Cytheria. She had been all unprepared, a moral invalid, not a joyful bride her smarting eyeballs seared by a long vision of agony, she had stared unheeding at the pale love-light she had kindled in a man's eyes, and had fallen to him, weakly, feebly, uninterested even in her own undoing. She saw, as in a vision, the body of his wife, the unconscious agent that had united them, lying cast aside like a useless tool. For, indeed, she had come to think of Edith by this time, As her splendid solemn rival all her tiresome little ways and grimaces sublimated by death i ought to have seen her once only once after she repeated this to herself she was sure that if she had seen the dead body of the woman she had despoiled shorn of the honours of patient respectful marital grief ruthlessly mulcted of all rights of ceremonial loss She would never have been able to follow that woman's husband on to a new lease of coexistence. "'Oh, what am I going to do, what am I going to do, if I only could die before he comes back?' The voluntary was rolling out. She was still on her knees. The verger touched her on the shoulder. "'Staying for the communion, miss?' "'No, no!' she exclaimed with exaggerated horror, and fled." End of chapter 33 Read by Lisa Reichert